Hi, this is Tiago. And this is Stephanie. We are from HexDevs.com and you are listening to the HexDevs podcast. We talk to developers building interesting stuff. Our goal is to share actionable insights to take you to the next level. So you can build a business, grow a team, improve engineering culture and build useful software. If you have been listening to the show and you like it, do us a favor and subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or on your favorite platform. You can also leave us a rating on Apple Podcasts. Enjoy this episode. Our guests today are Preetan Naff and Sankalp Jonah. They are the co-founders of Superlemon and the Light Chat. Superlemon is a WhatsApp plugin for Shopify stores serving over 20,000 happy Shopify merchants. They are now building the Light Chat, a customer support tool for small and medium-sized direct-to-consumer and e-commerce brands running Lean Teams. Superlemon recently crossed uh, $25,000 in monthly recurring revenue and has grown to more than 20,000 users in only 14 months which is, to me, is pretty amazing. And they did all of that by themselves. The team is basically just Britain and Sankalp. And as they say on their website, they are a small team with a big heart. Yep, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, that sums it up. Welcome. We're pretty excited to have you here. Um, I actually read the entire microsas guide uh it's really useful to me because i'm now in that stage guide i mean uh good you brought up the microsas guide actually i'm glad to hear that at your uh, stage in your in in your journey it's helpful because the intention of writing the guide was exactly that when sankalp and i were starting out uh, we were trying to figure these things out on our own. There was there were resources and podcasts on indie hackers which told us the general direction, but we wished there was a more structured guide like the one written now. That was if it was available to us two three years ago, it would have made our life way easier. So I'm glad that it can add value to your life. Yeah, for sure. Thank you for for writing and making it publicly available. Yeah, it's it's pretty cool because it's very actionable. Uh, so there's a lot of actionable insight in there. You can just pretty much just follow it, start building your business, which is uh, pretty cool. Like you write pretty well. And then Sankalp's blog is also pretty cool because it's more on the engineering side of things and so trying to uh, understand how you manage to grow product and make it scalable for 20,000 users like it's a lot of people yeah so in fact my blog is tailored more on the engineering side because in the process of building this product I, I face a lot of tech challenges and I tend to forget all of those after a while so my blog sort of like serves as a journal as well so I can refer to it later on so yeah that that way it works out pretty well yeah, and that makes a lot of sense. If you have to make those decisions again and you face those problems, you can just refer back to it. You no, know, you, you mentioned about scaling for to 20,000 users. That, that's not something that happened instantly. As and when users started growing, we adjusted and adapted our systems accordingly. So we, we started plugging in more servers when the load increased. I have a dashboard, uh, which I monitor twice a day, which shows me the traffic that we are currently servicing. And if I see any spike or anything that is unusual, then I tend to investigate. And uh, if required, I add more servers or upgrade the database and stuff like that. So that's how we sort of stayed on top and made sure that the app doesn't go down very often. What tools are you using? So we use this tool called Prometheus and Grafana. It's an open source piece of software. What it does, it, it collects metrics from your applications every 10 seconds or 15 seconds or whatever you configure. And then all of that data is shown on a nice dashboard, which you can look at in a very graphical format so that if there is any anomaly in your system, you get to know immediately with the spike. That is one tool we used. There's this other tool we used called Amplify, which is used for monitoring Nginx services. Our main server, which received all of the traffic, was running on Nginx. So I plugged it to an Amplify dashboard and uh, that's the one I typically look at twice a day. And I get a nice looking graph of uh, the, the, the current requests per second that we do and the number of current requests. The, the dropped requests and if there were any errors in the servers it shows me that in a 
sort of like an ex- extrapolated way instead of a very accurate way but it gives me a very good idea of if there's any action that I, I need to take do you have that running on aws yes we have that running on aws and amplify is something that uh, that runs independently it's a free service that you can check out on amplify.nginx.com but the other monitoring services all run on AWS. What sort of stuff are you using for the servers? Because I think I saw on your blog that you were using LightSail. And then do you manually scale that? Yes, uh, it's all manual. Uh, like I said, I look at the dashboard and if I see a spike in data, I manually provision another LightSail database. And I then go and add that particular IP address to my Nginx server and uh, it's set up. But what I do to make this process a little easier is I take a snapshot of my application server and keep it ready to provision a new server if required. So I don't have to uh, create a new LightSail server, upload the code on that, install all the dependencies. I don't have to do that all over again. All I need to do is create a new instance from an existing snapshot, plug that into my pool of servers. So it's sort of manual and automated at the same time. And I guess you are comfortable with that tool set. I see many startups trying to build a system from scratch and they just go directly to Kubernetes or ECS. They just try to make it super scalable from the start, from the get-go. Then like the users don't come, right? And then you're doing something different where you have a bunch of users and you have monitoring in place. You have a lot, lots of things in place. You just keep it simple and keep it light so you can kind of scale things, which is pretty interesting to me. Yeah, I believe that uh, things need to be kept simple. If we had used something like Kubernetes or uh, like an auto-scaling group or something from the get-go, you would require a, a person to keep monitoring that. And we are a team of two. We didn't have, we didn't, we wanted to stay that way. I had to consciously make sure that things are kept simple. Also, I believe that over-optimization is not good until things reach a level where they are going to break unless you optimize. I don't see a point in doing that right away because it slows down development time. It slows down uh, shipping of the product, which is more which is more important in the initial stages. So Sankar would keep saying this whenever you know we would run into some complex challenge, whether it's on product side or tech side. He would say K I S S, keep it simple, silly. We would try to keep embodying that whenever we found we are overcomplicating something, and we would ask ourselves, is it required right now? And if it's not, then we don't need to do it. So that really helped us save a lot of effort. I listened to your interview at the Indian Dream podcast. You mentioned the mom test book. I wanted to ask you how much time and money think that the, the book saved you? That book was like very, very crucial to us deciding to stop what we were doing before we started Super Lemon. So we were working on this idea called Session Fox, which was session recording for mobile apps. It's similar to Hotjar. The similarity ends right there. It's it's not for web, it's for mobile apps, and it's not for marketers. It was meant for product managers and developers. Before the mom test, I was... I thought I knew how to ask validating questions. Like I'd done so much research. We had uh, Sankar when I would go through the recordings of the user conversations and we thought we had it. We thought this is something people actually want. Uh, the mom test showed me that if you ask things in a certain way, they're always going to you know, say something that confirms your beliefs. Second, people inherently, especially in the startup world, want to be supportive and nice. Maybe one out of 1000 people are, you know, the people who nobody else likes, but they are actually saying the truth all the time. So you should probably, you know, seek them because they're not going to tell you something that you want to hear. So the mom test helped ask questions which uh, are not what you want to hear, but what you need to hear. For example, if somebody says, yeah, I definitely need a tool like yours. And so the second next question is, okay, then why aren't you using one already? Here are three alternatives that are already available. Now, that's an uncomfortable question to ask back when somebody just confirmed your belief. But the mom test says that that's exactly the kind of question you need to ask. Otherwise, people are always going to say something that makes you feel nice. Once we had read the book and then we went back to our uh, the users who we had talked to, the 30 users we had interviewed for Session Fox, we realized that the problem actually isn't something people want to solve. Uh, they They wish to solve it, they want to see what their users are doing in the app in a, in a recording format, which is what our product had, would have done. But they were doing fine with the existing ways of solving it, like using simple analytics uh, events or, you know, even not caring enough to even solve it. 
which meant it was not a pressing issue so once we realized that we knew that you know we don't want to sell something that uh, we don't want to build something that people don't need in order to run their uh, product or business because then it becomes really hard to convince people to buy and we didn't want to be on that side of the picture so yep around i think december end after we concluded running the interviews once again with the mom test version of the questions we decided to shutter session fox our focus completely changed from we're not going to ask leading questions we're not going to in fact we're going to go to the source of validation the validation that nobody can lie it is real usage which means if people are already doing something the behavior is already established uh, i don't need to go and ask them do you want to do this they're already doing it it's already validated so we changed our complete approach and that reflects in the super lemon journey after that the other thing that super lemon experience taught me was as developers we generally tend to build stuff because we enjoy the process of building things it's just fun to build something and see it work but if people are not willing to pay for it then it becomes more of a hobby than a business so that that was a hard pill to swallow but once we realized that things got a lot better by following that approach you are being followed by the problem and by the users like they are telling you what to do basically when trying to run a business is not about you it's not about your idea it should be about your customer exactly you hit the nail with that so a lot of people say i'm building this for myself or solving my own problem which is again as sankalp says a hobby if you build something for yourself don't expect thousands of other people to also want it magically you know people should have that expectation set or correctly if you want other people to use it then it's not about you it's about what they want and if you want to do uh, build something on the side as a hobby then make it about you but don't have that expectation that you know it'll go off uh, or take off like a rocket it seems that it took you like 3 months uh, after launching the product to kind of figure figure that out how did you come up with that uh, realization in 3 months if you think about it it's pretty quick in 3 months you just realize oh no one wants this thing so at that point i was upset at myself that i let it run for 3 months we we were building uh, the product we even uh, we were even paying a freelancer to help out with the development and move faster when our first set of those 30 users when we gave them the first sdk at the end of 3 months to integrate and then none of actually one person integrated after one month but the other 29 didn't despite multiple follow ups our immediate thought was what's happening but my immediate thought was this is happening again i have faced this before in 2016 17 i tried building something for uh, restaurants and uh, it was software for restaurants to do table ordering interestingly as of today you know people are adopting such solutions uh, you know where the menu shows up on your mobile phone after sc- scanning a qr code but in 2016 17 nobody wanted that and there was nothing in the market pushing restaurants to adopt it we uh, there i spent a year with uh, two other co-founders back then uh, interestingly sankalp had helped me build the mvp back then but he was still working at a job and i hadn't managed to convince him hey take this crazy plunge with me and quit your job and all that <laughs> but, but uh, i'd seen this before so the moment i saw people were not installing the sdk despite multiple follow ups i felt like we, you know it, it's a repeat of that whole thing and we need to find out right now before a year passes whether we are on the wrong track or not somebody at that point i don't remember specifically who but somebody from the startup industry when i asked in a few places uh, re- referred me to the mom test book and i immediately read it it took 4 hours to read so i recommend everybody who's hearing this podcast now to not put it on the read it later read it today it'll get over today and after reading we got to it and by the time we were done reinterviewing everyone we knew this was uh, we were on the wrong path So yeah I I had that deja vu feeling and I didn't want it to end up like another you know 2016 17 startup uh, attempt This is what Alex Humans uh mentions has you know you're not trying to solve a problem you're guessing and I think that's fine if you want to keep guessing I just think it's too expensive to do that in a business And the biggest expense is your time it's time is very precious you can't get it back you can make money in the future but you can't make your time back so yeah it is very expensive in fact we didn't actually spend any money on it just our time but that was the biggest resource that was available to us we we couldn't afford to do that anymore also uh, i think something that helped us was pritham and i are both inherently impatient people if we don't see results of our actions quickly we tend to move on 
to something else that's what happened with session fox uh, we spent 3 months nobody is integrating the sdk nobody's nobody is actually using the tool it's just crickets every day and that was not acceptable to us something needs to happen uh, somebody needs to use the tool give negative feedback that is also completely fine even if somebody gives negative feedback it means they're at least using the product but if there's no feedback at all then uh, that's a huge problem for us so i guess being patient is a good thing <laughs> when you try to build a business not in all cases though i wouldn't take that as a general rule it just helped us initially to get started we've also made many mistakes as a result of being impatient so yeah it wouldn't apply in all cases the overarching conclusion is uh, it is a feature not a bug so this is something that uh, sankalp uh, mentions on his blog maybe both of you kind of struggle with uh, imposter syndrome a, a little bit having this fear of not not being good enough uh, founders and maybe that happened after session fox and that kind of led you to do more market research for super lemon and figure out distribution before writing any line of code having that fear is not a bug but a feature so do you think that this is also a feature like having this kind of fear of a failure kind of led you to do a better job at super lemon yeah i absolutely i definitely think so Uh, because of that fear we made sure that not a single line of code is written before we are absolutely sure that we'll get at least 10 users if we build this product we did all the research that we had to to make that happen we looked at every single keyword on shopify we we went ahead and actually searched for every alphabet uh, every letter of the alphabet on the shopify app store to see if it auto completed because if it auto completes it's a keyword and then we made a list of those keywords researched each of the keywords to see how many apps are uh, how many apps exist for that keyword and what rating does the top app have and what at what velocity the ratings are coming in because if an app is getting a lot of reviews in recent times that means that particular problem statement still has demand but if it got a bunch of reviews a year ago and then there was no activity that means it's probably dead and at the same time even if an app is getting a lot of reviews uh and it has a very high rating of let's say 5 stars then there's no point uh, in us trying to compete with them because there's really not much window of opportunity for us to take 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 over so we spent a lot of time finding that sweet spot of uh, and uh, and shortlisted a bunch of keywords where the velocity of reviews was high and the average rating of the top uh reviewed app was low enough that there was a opportunity for us to enter then out of that shortlist we picked up a certain keyword and went ahead with it at this point of time we were sure that because we did all of this we will get some amount of users so that that fear which keeps uh which we always have makes us do these things so yeah it's definitely i would definitely say it's a feature i th- i think it's also because at some point our mindset switched from uh, we want to build amazing products to we want to actually build a business uh we didn't want to spend a year building an amazing product that nobody used at the end of the day because our goal here is not to build a not necessarily not just to build an amazing product it's to build our life on top of a business we knew we didn't want to go back to jobs so it had to work we had a limited runway till the end of 2019 our savings would dry up after that and we would we'd still survive we could have done freelancing projects and all to continue but it would just make everything harder so we were extra i think we uh, overcompensated on the marketing uh, and the market validation side just so that we could be sure something works this time i'm curious to know more about what led you to shopify in the first place oh this is a uh, i mean there there's two parts to this question uh, the answer is one is a friend of ours was running a successful app on shopify he was just one person at that time doing 20k in mrr and we were like what you're one person doing 20k in amara sankalp and i just like lost our heads we were like okay wow tell us all about this and the second was uh, since we had already faced the validation issue and we just shuttered one uh, product because there was no demand we wanted to go to a place where demand already existed because you know if 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 a if a successful business depends on this multivariate equation which is you know market demand and then you are able to find that demand then you are able to build a product that serves that demand 
the more variables in the equation get solved, the higher the chances of your business succeeding. And going to a marketplace like Shopify, which we evaluated alongside Slack, Atlassian, and other marketplaces, meant that one part of the equation, you know, solving a real problem and then get, getting customers for that problem were solved already to a large extent. Obviously, just it doesn't mean you just list on Shopify and you'll magically get customers. You still have to do that keyword research, etc. But it also reduced the level of uncertainty. So that's where we started looking at marketplace. But when our friend uh, told us about how well he's doing, it was quite obvious to us that Shopify is a big opportunity and we should try that. I think it was in your microsize guide that you recommended doing like a 50-50% work, like marketing and engineering. Do both of you do 50-50 marketing and engineering or did you have to uh, decide to split the work? Uh, Pritam and I are pretty much the 50-50 that you're talking about. So I, I take care of tech and engineering and he takes care of the rest. And it was sort of like a natural fit. Not sure how exactly it happened, but we just aligned ourselves into that that role as we as we went along. So it was actually pretty seamless. Even though we were working remotely, we were very tightly in sync and uh, we tried to keep our communication asynchronous. So Pritam would just give me the design files and I would engineer it. We didn't have to communicate too much either. So I think that sort of helped being able to do so many things with, with just two people. Just being aware of what the other person's role is without explicitly having to say it, that, that helped a lot. Yeah, and uh, the, that 50-50 uh, section, I added that section because I see a lot of solo devs especially, or even if, if it's a team of two devs, they spend 100% of their effort on building the product and writing code and designing the product, but they spend almost 0% on an ongoing basis in getting customers. They do a product hunt launch or a show HN or things that have a one-time payoff, if, especially only if it goes well. And then they kind of stop. They go back to building for their next launch three months or six months later. It's, a, it's like this. If you're building product every day, if you're writing code every day, then why shouldn't you also be doing marketing every day or you know at least at a very regular cadence it's just if you ask that question it becomes obvious as developers we are naturally oriented to go and build because during our careers we always have a manager a product manager whatever telling us exactly what we need to do developers still have this weird relationship with marketing and seo it just depends on how you do it, right? Totally. To it is. I mean, so there's two types of marketing here. The one where you go and tell people, hey, use my product and pay for it. I still find myself uncomfortable doing that. So how we have resolved that is we'll just, it's like this. It's, it's you know, you're in a, on a beach on a hot day and people want ice cream. So make sure your stall is on the street where people are walking. They will come to you. You don't have to scream at them. Please come to my stall and buy my ice. People want ice cream. They are walking on the road. You are standing right there. They're going to buy from you. Marketing is pretty much like that. You are identifying people who want ice cream are on that beach walking that street. And therefore, I should stand there and set up a stall and tell them come and get ice cream. And the other approach is, you know, having a megaphone or loudspeaker and then shouting it out everywhere. Some people do that really well and it works for them. I personally, I don't, I, I find myself shy of doing that. Uh, but yeah, marketing is that uh, standing on the right street uh, where people want what you have. You said something interesting about uh, developers having a weird relationship with marketing. I think a lot of developers have this misconception that they do all the work and the marketing guys don't do much this this disconnect exists because the marketing and the development team doesn't interact that much i think that needs to change everybody in the team needs to be aware of uh, what the other person is doing and how important it is you, you can tell a developer in this way that you're building the tool but somebody has to use it and if somebody if a large scale of people start using it we can identify more bugs and you'll get to solve more problems but to have more people use it, you need the marketing team. You need a continuous stream of users coming in to view your product. And that's where marketing comes in. The marketing team also needs to be aware of exactly how the product is built so that they can sell it better. So that is something we are trying to incorporate in Delight Chat. Yeah, we're trying to make sure our whole team is on the same page. 
where our marketing team understands what is the product we're building and why we are building it. The engineering team understands why, again, why are we building this and why do we need to build it this way? So, for example, we have a one one channel called Customer Chats, where every one-on-one interview with a customer who signed up for the Delight Chat Beta uh, is public. I I write down the notes that are actionable for us, and this way, people, everybody on the team knows why we are doing this, and that gap between marketing and engineering is slightly bridged. Uh, there's more we can do here. Uh, for example, we did an engineering-led marketing project, and I, we're very certain we want to do more. Uh, it's again another way for us to bridge the gap uh, so that everybody on the team knows what is happening on the other side. It shouldn't be isolated functions. And you're totally right about that product manager role. So I was a product manager before all this. Like that's what I was doing for as a job. It it was very much like this. It, it was very difficult for me until I figured out how to uh, frame uh, frame the uh, or you know pose the questions or uh, the solutions it's very difficult me to, for me to get developers on board with why are we doing this what is the impact of it they would look at it as a functional to-do list of things to be done and over time like at least with the teams i worked i would try to bring that uh, awareness to them that hey you know what happens when you push this feature this way people are going to come here and do this do you want them to do this or do you want them to do that and i'll try to make them think about the user and not look at this just as a component with some code written behind it that's supposed to work when you click a button. Uh, so I totally understand that. Uh, totally understand what you mean by that. It's actually better for the customer when everyone is onboarded and everyone cares about the user. Do you think that having this clearly defined culture is a side effect of also being a maker in the? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, like uh, like I said earlier, for us, this is. Uh, uh, the end result of this is not just a product. We want to build our life on top of this. And we have so far with our the first leg of the journey. What we are trying to do is, again, remember that equation that I mentioned a little while back. We're trying to make sure that that equation gets solved. The answers to the variables in the equation are answered one by one. Uh, because Sankalp and I had already oriented ourselves that way, when now that we are building a team and uh, for Delight Chat, the whole company is kind of an extension of the, that thought process. Uh, and we are trying to bring people's uniqueness into it, but then align them with, hey, ultimately what we are doing here has to have meaning in the long term. So we need to know why we are doing what we are doing, for whom we are doing it. It's for us, but first it's for the people who will use the product. And to add to that, it feels immensely good to solve a real problem because I remember this one experience uh, uh, with Superlemon. A customer had complained about something because the app was down for a little bit. What he said was, it's it's chaos in our office right now because your app isn't working. And I thought about what he said and I'm like, our app is so essential for somebody that if it stops working, then their life becomes chaos. That's the kind of impact we have on people. I think that feels way better than, you know, the money that comes in. And even, even with the money, when somebody pays you, it, it means that, the problem you solve for them is so important in their life that they're, they're actually willing to part ways with some of their money. So yeah, the, the, we, we always orient ourselves around trying to solve a real problem. And then a business gets built as a side product of that. So if we manage to do the, the uh, if we manage to do that well, then a business can naturally be built around it. Yeah, I love that. It comes from serving, right? Like if you serve your customers well, and if you empower them, uh, they will pay I have something to add here. So uh, this is just a, you know, for fun time conversations, Sankar and I, but we did this meta thing with our journey. Uh, we started with Super Lemon. We discovered what's important to us. Uh, it's serving the customers. From Super Lemon, we derived that people are using the app for two reasons. One is talking to their customers and giving them support. And the other was sending out automated messages. And we continued down the path of serving customers. To a point where we are building a tool, Delight Chat is a tool that we can use internally to serve our own customers. And our customers will use Delight Chat to serve their customers. While this is only for fun conversation, it it was part of the reason why we were really into this idea and this problem space. We really believed serving customers. And initially, we, we were only doing it ourselves, but now we're building software that helps others do the same thing felt like very important to us. By having this customer's pain as your guide, it's like it, it might make it easier for you to prioritize what to build next. 
I would say we prioritize based on the frequency of those queries. Like if 10 people ask for the same thing again and again, then it's a no-brainer. We have to build it. If it's just an isolated thing and maybe one or two customers asked about it, then it's more like a specific thing that customer needs. So it's probably not something a, a wide variety of people would be willing to pay for. So we always prioritize according to uh, the frequency of uh, the same query coming over and over. Like Let's say the customer is asking for something that might be complicated or might take you a lot of time to do it. Do you try to make it build a simpler solution that you can fit, like improve later? So uh, the prioritization also depends on both these factors, as you said. It depends on the frequency as well as the complexity of the feature that they're asking for. If it is too complex to, to be built at the moment, we would probably defer it. The first thing we would do is to see if we can break it up into a simpler implementation. Something that solves the problem to an extent where the users are happy with a reduced feature set. Uh, that's what we did with SuperLemon as well. We, we started with, so people were using our tool to send messages over WhatsApp. So initially, we uh, the product was helping them do this manually. We had a dashboard where you had a list of users and you could click on each of them and send messages to them manually. So this is, this is a cumbersome process and most of them wanted an automated solution. But we were not in a position to do that uh, right away. So we went with the manual approach instead. But as a result, instead of 100 people using the tool, at least 10 people started using it, which was still kind of significant for us. Uh, so it's important to find that balance and not get swayed by your customers every time. Because uh, sometimes you might think that if somebody asks for a feature, it, it, it might seem really important and uh, you might be urged to stop everything you're doing and build that right away. That's not a very sustainable thing to do. It's it's easier to uh, keep it later in the roadmap and, and prioritize based on what uh, the direction that your, the product is already headed. How do you do the customer support? Because I guess you have a bunch of queries all day long, you know. So I'm curious to know if you kind of automated parts of your customer support. How, how do you handle all of that? Because it's just it was just the two, two of you, right? Oh, yeah. This is something actually we are pretty proud of. Uh, we pay very close attention to the query uh, customer support queries. And if anything is coming up repeatedly, we take some time and solve it in the product itself, either by adding in a, in a small extra feature or by putting a lot of text, help, help documentation, FAQs inside the product, which is contextual. For instance, if customers are facing issues on clicking a certain button, uh, we put a small help text right under that button. To, for them to know what to expect. So we made these small, small tweaks in the product based on uh, the kind of queries we were getting. And that dropped our uh, ticket volume to a very large large extent. That, that really helped us do this with just the two of us. I think the most impactful thing we did was whenever, again, whenever people had questions, which, you know, how do I do this uh, in the app? To us, it was like, this should have been obvious. Why is it not? And a simple solution we found was in that uh, in the corresponding section in the app where that user would you know try to enable a feature or modify a feature, and that's where they would have the question that can I do this here? We would just have a small FAQ like section on the left left hand side of the page where you know it's a blurb of text which says if you want to do this then do this. And by the way, the messages are sent after ten minutes. I remember once uh, one such change which. Uh, I think we were getting what, 10 or 15, 10 messages a day for that particular question. And it dropped to one or zero after we just added like two sentences in the app. So we, we did that really well. And that kept our support volume low. It it stayed between five to 15 messages a day, even as we kept scaling from 100,000 to 20,000 users. You didn't want to hire anyone. You had to think, right? You had to like come up with uh, solutions for the customer queries when you say okay so there's a bunch of people complaining about this let me just fix it and then no one's talking about it anymore and i guess it makes sense when you when you have a larger company they hire a bunch of people to do customer support instead of fixing the underlying issues with the app and to me it always felt a little inefficient it's like slapping a band-aid on another band-aid yeah for sure so do you think that 
by being a bootstrapped uh, company, by not having a bunch of money, it helped you prioritize things and make them better and made you smarter uh, in a way. Uh, absolutely. More resourceful, definitely, uh, or doing more with less. We do things this way uh, because of our past experiences. And I can totally attribute you know, this uh, root cause analysis and only solving a problem when it's real and then doing the minimum amount required to solve it instead of building a whole new feature or hiring a whole new person to solve that problem. That mindset came from this place where Sankalp and I met. It was a company called Goodbox. That's where uh, we worked together for the first time. That was my first product manager gig. I was working directly with the product head and co-founder. And they they had this kind of mindset. We were an operations uh, heavy uh, business. The support team had this very structured way of collecting customer complaints, which got categorized and uh, first of all, into the kind of problem it was and then whether it need to, needed to be solved. And if it needed to be solved, what was the minimum kind of effort? And the, I, I remember one of the implementations back then was just adding a sentence in the app after the order got placed or something which says you will receive a confirmation within the next 60 minutes. Because people are asking, hey, is my order confirmed? Is my order confirmed? And just one sentence with six words or something was the solution to that answer. So I think that because of these experiences, we are the way we are today and we tried to solve that, solve our problems that way. Secondary was the bootstrapped angle where we didn't have resources to throw at the problem. So we had to just be creative and try to make do with less. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I think everybody should do that. Tell me everything about uh, Superlemo and the light chat. So how did you get your first 10 paying customers? Do you, do you remember that? Like I said earlier, before we launched, we made sure that we were going to get some users uh, definitely if we if we make this product because we already did the keyword research. Uh, we researched the reviews and did all of that. So we knew that once we launched the app, we would get some customers. So we launched with a free, product, a free app first. Sure enough, we did get customers. People started installing the app and using it. And the moment that happened, there was a tight feedback loop set up. Customers would raise queries every day asking for more features. We would take those queries and we would implement, we would convert them into feature sets and build them. And then we would launch it and then folks would ask for more features and we would do that as well. Until we reached a point where we could say that, okay, now we have a very distinct side of the app, which, which solves a real problem. Uh, while there is one side of the app, which also solves a problem, but it's not something people would be willing to pay for. So we kept that side of the product free. The other one, other side of things, which actually had some amount of impact, uh, we launched a small uh, $3 a month paid plan for that feature. Within the next, within the month, I think we got around 50 paying customers, I think. Yeah, we were at $200 MRR. Yeah, we were at $200 MRR, which was mind-blowing for us. People were pay paying for something we made. We never actually made first-hand money in our lives before. We were getting paid uh, a salary where we worked, but this was first-hand money, so it was really something. Once that happened, we continued to keep this feedback loop running with the paid customers because now we've identified that section of the market who are clearly willing to pay for stuff. Now all we needed to know is what can we do to make them pay even more. And that part was easy because it turns out that if you ask them, they will tell you because they really need this problem to be solved. And uh, you've already validated to them that you're good at what you do. So there's some amount of trust already built in. So now all that's needed is to ask them what they want. And uh, if a lot of people say the same thing, then build it. After that, it just becomes a question of optimizing the price. So we, we experimented a lot with that. We increased our prices. Uh, we saw drop-offs. We decreased it. We saw a slight rise. Kept doing that for a bit till we, we found our sweet spot. And I guess it started out with uh, probably the wrong features, maybe. <laughs> what are kind of the most important features that you built after launching the product, after getting the feedback from the customers? So I think uh, one very obvious thing which didn't strike to us right uh, in the, at the start was people will be willing to pay for stuff which makes them money. Uh, so the first paid plan that we launched was helping them do customer support, but it wasn't making money for them. It, it just made their life a little easier and boosted their productivity, it, but it did not translate into a dollar value. Rather, it was not obvious the way it translated into dollar value because you talked to someone and they ended up buying or something like that. Correct. But the moment we launched a feature uh, where we could show a tangible number 
uh, on a graph in our app saying that we made you this much money this month then it became a no brainer for them uh, then in their mind they're like okay i paid 10 for this app but it made me 50 i'll continue using it forever why why would i stop so i think that was the turning point when when you, your product actually makes money for them and you are able to attribute that to your product as opposed to not having a tangible way to say that we made you this money if you have that then uh, i think that that's the takeaway here referring back to the microsoft uh, guide you mentioned that you decided to not go to not follow the traditional vc funded startup path after taking some time off to to reflect on what matters the most to you and i imagine that today you are also busier than ever and you also need to make quick decisions but i imagine that you don't have that that time anymore so how do you come up with those insights today why you're running a successful business do you have a mentor i have no mentor but i do follow people on the internet who are either at the same stage as us because then you know they're experiencing the same things and they might be doing something to solve their problems or somebody who's just a year or two ahead of us in our journey because they just faced what we face or what we are facing right now and they've already overcome it by asking them or or maybe consuming what they are writing or sharing about that topic you get to learn something very actionable for example in our case there's someone a founder of another startup who's a few months ahead of us who's already gone through the hiring process and you know trying to keep an engaged team while being remote so it was very obvious to us that if we ask him what did you do to solve these problems everything that we'll hear from him is going to be very actionable because he just did those and some of them didn't work some of them worked and he has some deductions on why it worked and why it didn't work i don't think sankar when i either of us have mentors in quote unquote you know a list of people uh, but we go to certain people who we know have certain experiences whenever we face that exact problem and we just ask them that hey we are trying to solve it tell us how you solved it then we'll tell you how we are thinking of solving it and then we'll implement something and see what happens something like that i do think earlier we had more time before uh, you know building a team and working on starting starting to work on delight chat which would give us more time to think on our own that okay how should i do this but then the counter to that is most problems on in the world are already solved by someone else which means it's probably more efficient to first define the problem correctly and then go to the next person who's already solved it and ask them what did you do and what do you think you should not do because you know you might have committed mistakes that we can avoid so yeah that's how i look at the whole mentorship thing ask people actionable questions when you face that problem that's actually the definition of mentorship for, for me but maybe you see it like an informal mentorship yeah i mean they don't like check in on us or uh, we don't have any weekly you know okay so tell us something new or teach us something new it's just a group of people who we will ask questions to like do find that it helps a lot hanging out with people that are doing what i want to do and see exactly how they did it what they are how they are doing it right now so that's a really clever way to yeah go to the next step absolutely and i think here this is a mistake we had committed long ago but uh, since corrected which is we would ask people so how do you find a idea which is the wrong way to ask a question the right question is hey i'm researching on this idea but i'm not sure whether it's perfectly validated so i've done this what else do you think or where am i missing now this is a very actionable question it means you have done something it means you are stuck somewhere and it means the other person has something to tell you that hey you know probably this step you could have gone further ahead and done a 20 minute call instead of an email and then asked them these specific questions and if the answers to them are positive that means your validation is on point uh, versus asking how do i find business ideas there's no way to you know help you or help someone uh, or for a person who's mentoring someone to help them if they say how do i find or a business idea so i think the right way of asking questions is very important and i think they're more inclined to help you if they know that you've already done your homework and you just need help with one particular area and you've sort of proven to them that you're not wasting their time Uh, you're serious about this because they their time is also valuable and they probably get a lot of such questions from a lot of people like right now i i get emails uh, which i reply on the weekends emails from the blogs or tweets thankfully most of them 
give me a specific problem statement saying i'm doing this and i have tried this and i'm you know i tried cold outreach for my agency and i'm not getting clients uh, so where do you think i might be going wrong so now this is very actionable versus somebody saying that uh, you know how do i find an idea for that i can work on i, I have no answer to that in fact uh, nobody can answer that for you you have to go through the process of trying to discover something or you know finding a pain point stuff like that i i couldn't agree more i think not only by making the right questions means that you will get the answers that you need but it also shows for the people that you are asking that you put some effort into going figure things out by yourself right that's exactly what happens and uh, you don't know what to say to them right you're like so what's your blog going to be about or you're struggling to write on the topic maybe then i can point you to a guide on how to write better but yeah you can't answer that question the ones you you, you just mentioned i wanted to ask you too is uh if you're building a business maybe you want to help people that you care about right so i'm wondering if you pick the right audience or the right types of customers uh, that you care about because you mentioned that oh we're building this thing we're building a business because we want to have a good life and then you have to interact with your customers all the time you have to serve them so i i, I think that you you also should care about them and like them so i'm just curious about that relationship with your your audience so i don't think it is necessary to like your customers i think it is necessary to be able to empathize with their problems and understand how you can solve them and you know if you are in a unique position where you can solve it really well power to you liking your customers and market segment is a bonus i would think it just makes life easier or better for you uh, whenever you're interacting with your customers it doesn't feel like oh this is such a drag i don't want to be doing this i think for people who are still trying to make their first business work you shouldn't care that much about uh, or you know like you could be building software for church and you could be an atheist it doesn't matter if you know their problem and you solved it really well that's what really matters and you can always build another business once you've figured it out for a customer uh, segment that you care or people that you really want to be associated or you know helping but i don't think it should be a deal breaker for someone uh, early in their journey i do think it's important to be nice to them though when they uh, raise queries and stuff also wherever possible you could try and relate with them for instance there was this one customer who we we did a customer support over whatsapp in the early days so he had texted me and i had a profile picture with me holding a dog that wasn't even mine in the end he was like i oh you you you're a dog owner i am a dog owner as well i i i'm not a dog owner but i said that i was and i really like dogs which which i actually do so we talked for a little bit and then he left a five star review for us so you you could go that slight extra mile and maybe make a little bit of a small talk with them and just be nice and empathetic in general and i think that that is enough that that goes along with yeah and when when we started i don't think we had any profound love for e-commerce merchants simply because i sankar and i both of us are not the kind of people who browse instagram heck we don't have instagram on our phones installed or you know even buy online regularly but we understood the impact of uh, e-commerce and we understood the problems in the lives of sellers because they were also trying to build a business like us very much like us just that their you know method of delivery is a physical good versus for us it's lines of code that's the only difference everything else uh, in terms of dna is the same so that way we could really empathize and connect with them and really feel for them and their problems and their frustrations cuz it was very much like our own yeah that makes sense so at least you need to empathize with them and kind of understand their problems you don't need to be friends with them or like hang out with them all day or anything like that but it helps to be empathetic. For some developers it's hard to be empathetic and also you kind of get separated from customer side a little bit which I think it's harmful for the business. I think it's really important for developers to at least connect with the customers or at least empathize with them, understand them. Like you're just building code every day it's hard to to know what to build right especially if you're an indie hacker or you're trying to build a business if you don't empathize with people then how can you solve the problem this dissociation between the business and the in the the technical aspect of the the company i don't think works pretty well 
Yeah, and I I think there's a very simple heuristic to solve this problem. Force yourself to talk to maybe three or five users or whatever, set a number that works for you every day. Every day that you're working on your product, maybe 10% of the time you talk to users. And it can be even casual chats. It doesn't necessarily have to be about your product. But by talking to them over a period of time, you'll develop an intuition who they are and what they care about, where their problems lie, or even the problems that they have with your app. Because they're also, at the end of the day, humans. 98% of them are good people. There will always be assholes everywhere. So 2% customers will be bad to you and mean to you. Ignore them. The rest of them are going to tell you that, hey, this is really helping me with this. But you know what? If you did this, it would make my life easier. That's it. You just found out the problem that you need to solve in your product because your customers just told you what the problem is and how they what they face and how it can make their lives better. It's a different matter of you prioritizing when to solve it. Uh, but yeah, you've already discovered the key element. You, you are building Super Lemon and it's probably a very competitive market uh, on Shopify. I'm curious to know more about the light chat. Like that is not specific to Shopify. So why did you decide to do that? Is that, is that like a strategic move or something else? Yes. So while platforms are great, like everything in life, pros and cons, and platforms have their cons too. Mostly, we were not comfortable with the over-reliance on a platform in terms of, you know, the product itself only working with, say, Shopify or the product uh, only getting its customers via Shopify's app store, uh, which means you have control, but not really all of it. And since Uncle Ben and I committed to making a long-term business, we want to keep doing this for five, 10 years. We want to build something where we can have control over our business, whereas uh, by that, I mean the product is built independent of a platform, but works with a platform. Uh, and we are acquiring customers independent of platforms, but also via platforms, because that's a good hack. And uh, with Delight Chat from day one, we have focused on that, where our product is works in a way that you don't need to connect it to Shopify or anything. You can just sign up on our website. Right now, it's still uh, you know signing up for beta, but in, in a month or so, you'll be able to sign up and start using it, regardless of whether you're Shopify merchant or not. But the Shopify app and integration will enable you to get those uh, deep integration and data and insights from the Shopify store right inside the dashboard. Similarly, in terms of customers, uh, when we get listed on the Shopify app store, uh, we will get customers from the app store uh, searching for a customer support tool. But we have been from day one focusing on how do we get customers in the long run through our own properties, which is uh, SEO and content, which we have been heavily focusing on. And again, it's all of this is pursuant to that longer, uh, long-term goal of building a uh, you know, long-term business that thrives on its own. Shopify is a great place to have an integration and launch because of the rate of growth of the platform and the sheer num magnitude of the number of merchants available on the platform. That is, a, that is the reason our first integration is with Shopify. But it's very likely that in a year from now, we'll be supporting multiple platforms. I'm, I'm curious to know if uh, you ever got uh, an offer to be acquired or something or maybe like investors wanted to give you money a couple of times <laughs> we, i think the first acquisition offer we got was two or three months into the journey and uh, this is from a canadian company which i won't name uh, but they're doing well they're also big in the shopify ecosystem and uh, but sankalp and i were like you know what we just started and things seem to be working let's see where this goes uh, if we do the right things there'll be more offers down the line and we can decide then whether to take it we also got investors. You know, funny thing in the past, we have run after investors trying to pitch them ideas. But then we found, especially as our understanding of marketing and creating value increased, we found that the right ways for doing the right way to go about this is to do something interesting that gets investors to come to you. Because and you're you're way more likely to get funded and on your terms if that happens. So once Super Lemon started uh, growing faster, investors started coming to us which was like first time happening in our lives. And we had to tell them that, hey, this is a business. We don't have any Series A plans or grand ambition to make a billion dollars in ARRs. There's no point in taking your money. Every time we got an acquisition offer or somebody wanting to invest, that just sort of, uh, we knew we were doing something right because we were getting these offers. But it also, it was also very distracting because whenever we considered that taking any of such offer, we would spend a lot of time thinking about it. A lot of bandwidth would get consumed in going back and forth with them. 
sometimes it won't materialize and we just we then realize that okay we've given a lot of insights to these investors and now they're going to go and they're going to build their own product and now they have all the information we need so when we realized that we came to the conclusion that we should either sell the product or take somebody's money or we should not do it but whatever it is we sh- we should decide right now and and go forward and not waste time on this because it's just going to consume bandwidth and uh, it 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 won't help help us in the long run yeah for sure because then you spend time <laughs> thinking about offers and all of that and forget about your customers which is not good <laughs> yeah i was just saying that's what ended up happening so it was uh, very counterproductive for us and that's when we stopped so i guess you're going to launch the light chat very soon what kind of features uh, you're going to del- deliver on the launch and then yeah just just what's next for you with the light chat um so we are working towards a beta launch which is uh, the first time where people merchants will actually start using the product and we are planning to do this in the second half of january we originally planned to do this sooner we like I think we have already expressed that we don't like long development cycles but this one uh, has gone on for will have gone on for nearly 3 months by the time we launch we we realized one thing uh, with superlemon we were able to hack together an mvp in 2 weeks and that was sufficient to get users but now that we are entering a market which is super mature uh, as in there's already established uh, problems and solutions to those problems in a support tool without which a support tool is not really worthy of consideration the we have taken the first few months in building that baseline product something that we can something that serves as a foundation on top of which we start building uh, more feature parity uh, features with the competitors and also start building on things that make us unique or better than competitors and like completely derived out of customer insight first time customers will use our uh, product is going to be in january second half and we'll see from there how things go and when we should go out of beta and start charging customers but it might probably take 3 or 3 months or something after the launch that's super exciting i will be following the the light chat journey i hope it goes well <laughs> you mentioned that uh, you started doing more seo and writing content and i'm curious to know if uh, you decided to do that just to help the business or is that something that you wanted to do like building in public i think pritam actually wrote a very comprehensive blog post about why we decided to write and build in public this again goes back to some philosophical discussions we would have in the early days when our product was not super lemon was not yet ready we were still not sure where to go uh, where we are headed and we had we were certain about two things our superpowers because of the virtue of which uh, by virtue of our journey so far and whatever we learned in our past uh, our superpowers are creating media and creating code uh, code to solve problems while we sleep and media to answer questions while we sleep and uh, from the get go we wanted to leverage these two permissionless layers as well as possible uh, and we love the idea that you know if i write a blog post and i'm asleep somebody or maybe hundreds of people could still read it while i'm asleep and gain value or you know we build a product and we write code for it and thousands of people are using it while we are on a vacation we knew we wanted to put out content and write about our journeys the whole thing has served more like a journal like sankalp described earlier that, hey we did this here's how we did it it's more about you know, reiterating to ourselves this is what we did in the hopes that somebody else can do it too the somebody else can do it to part was when you know for the first time we saw that superlemon is succeeding as a business uh, by then we had already brought in multiple friends of ours into the shopify ecosystem in fact one of them just recently sold their app and they had started a few months after us after they were trying out different ideas and i was like you know what stop all this take this idea and just launch it on shopify and see what happens and i'll tell you what to do next after that based on what we know we could see the impact from the get go of how you know if we could help other people do what we do you know it makes our life better cuz now we have more friends to talk about uh, talk to and it also makes the world a better place so i ended up writing that blog post called mission 1000 uh, it's based on the idea that a thousand millionaires is better than one billion dollar company wealth distribution is better when a thousand people have a million dollar business 
And so the way we can do that is by telling people how we did it in the hopes that they can replicate those steps and do it themselves. Oh, that's amazing. I love that idea. This is one of my 100 goals for life. And one of our goals is to help a thousand people make a hundred thousand dollars or something like that. And I really like your idea. Like just help a bunch of people make a bunch of money and they it's better than give giving money to a bunch of like billionaires and like startups and whatever. Absolutely. I'm, I'm very, very pro capitalist, but anti-monopolist. And <laughs> it's a kind of goes against the face of capitalism. Uh, but uh, I feel like, uh, I, I, I don't know. So again, uh, the reason these kind of thoughts entered our minds was because of experiences in the past. Because in 2017, uh, when I failed in my previous startup, I took a sabbatical. And one of the things I was reading uh, a lot about was the condition of the current world, how money is made, how money is distributed, and where is the wealth concentration going, and how does welfare happen for the society or you know whole of humanity as a whole. The graphs are very telling on one thing. The rich are getting richer at a faster rate because the more wealth they accumulate, the faster that wealth grows in terms of quantum of wealth. And the poor, uh, or rather the non-rich, the is the wrong word here the non-rich are also growing because the whole world is growing but their share is uh their, their rate of growth is way lower du just during the pandemic people uh rich investors and people who manage like large funds they've like double triple their uh, f uh fund values by investing in tech stocks that doesn't mean the rest of society is doing well uh, somewhere in the back of the mind that problem of what can we do so that wealth distribution can again start going back to people versus you know individual corporations while i don't think we have a solid answer to that maybe that subconsciously influenced certain decisions we took over the years i can relate to that it's kind of weird to say no you know actually it's actually good that people have money it's not money that it's the problem like the way most people use them and the fact that only a few people use them and direct how things are is the problem, not the money itself. You know, if you think of, uh, if somebody says that I want to make money, the first image that you will project onto them is, oh, you want to be a Wall Street thug or something like that, which is completely not true. It's, uh, I mean, the richest people are living lives way different than us. And that's because they think and care about money and where it comes from. It doesn't mean their life is obsessed about it. It doesn't mean they're non-human like us and they don't do regular things like eat food every day. Uh, but it means they have consciously thought about money in our society. I think Twitter, the tech Twitter sphere is starting to warm up and be more accepting of this. But our society as a whole kind of shuns like, oh, if you publicly declare, I want to make a lot of money. They're like, you're going to be sad and you're going to only like, you know, live a sad life or something. That's the first thing they tell you, which is completely wrong. Uh, in fact, what you should say to them is, cool, what do you plan to do with that money? Because money doesn't do anything for you except enable you to do some other things. You should set a goal that I want to do these things and I need this much money to enable it. So now I'll go out and get it. And that's kind of how Sankalp and I internally decided our wealth numbers. So we have like these numbers which uh, tell us that, hey, if we, if we ever hit these numbers, we're doing well in life and we don't have to think about money. And if we ever cross this second milestone, we should probably stop working and trading our time to make money anymore and do something better with our lives. Because clearly we have passed that stage and there's something more impactful we can do. So I think more people should talk about and think about money, uh, but they should think about it in the right way. It's an enabler. I think there's a deeper problem here because there's this thing in, there's this kind of a taboo or a stigma in the world that if you make money, you make money by taking from somebody else, which is, not true at all especially with the rise of the internet it's not true at all uh anybody can make money if if the, the the kind of opportunity and it's easy to find an opportunity also because the internet doesn't stop anybody from uh doing anything right you you really have no excuse and no permission layers like you don't need an mba degree to make money on the internet which i love because i'm very anti-mbas also yeah that's what we love about tech you don't need anything except for a laptop and an internet connection i think that the fact that we don't we don't talk too much about money is how people are basically slaves of their work when you learn how to maximize your savings you are in control of your money you are in control of your life so how bad can that be 
Yeah, absolutely. And uh, here's another thing. A lot of people can get rich just by working at the right places, maybe in the tech industry, maybe not, and investing that money correctly. But you just have to change your time horizon. If you invest in the market for the next 25 years, and if you just don't make blunder decisions, like, you know, when the market has crashed, sell everything, and the when the market is at its peak, buy everything, just don't make these two stupid decisions, and you're going to make money enough to survive for the rest of your life after that. It's just that some people want it sooner. So then pick a slightly more risky, a riskier path. You're trading risk with uh, potential payoff. And that's the uh, trade-off we have made. Uh, the riskiest path that's going for that uh, unicorn opportunity that VCs lay out in front of you. And uh, the least risky path is just having a job and always sticking to a job. Somewhere in between is trying to build a bootstrap business with no grandiose ambition, which makes the likelihood of success much higher. Yeah, and we love to talk about finance on the podcast. Uh, we we are what they call fire people, so we follow financial independence, early retirement, and so we we are very passionate about that topic. We could just go on forever talking about it, but yeah, you just get a better life, and there are many ways to do it. Uh, you can either save a lot of money, you can either build a business, but I think in the future people will do both things. You know, like they they will have a side business. They maybe will work a little bit uh, for an employer and it's probably not going to be five days a week. It's probably going to be less than that. I'm really hopeful that what we are talking about inspires people to get started. You know, like there's lots of po possibilities. You just need to get started. If, if people are still on the fence after hearing all this uh, about, you know, trying something on the side, especially that now because of the internet and all the tools available, you can do it while you have a job. It's like the least risky thing in the world. Think about it. We are on this tiny uh, thing called a planet, which is spinning around this star, which is spinning around this Milky Way. We are insignificant and inconsequential and our lives will end in 70 or 80 years, which means this is all the time you have in your life to do anything you wanted. So then it begs the question, are you doing the things you want to do? Because if not, then this is it. Like if you don't do it, it's not going to happen ever. Uh, there is no second uh, chances after this. If you have something you want to do, whether it is play the play guitar in a cafe in the weekends, because that's your passion and you want to try and make money out of it, or you want to make pots, pottery is your passion, do it. There's no reason not to do it, especially with today's times. Yeah, that was a really interesting talk. Like, <laughs> I still have lots of questions, but I, I want to be considerate of your time. I'm super grateful that you accepted the invite and shared all of that with us. So thanks. Thanks very much. Thank you for having us here. Yeah, thank you for having us. It was, it was great. Yeah, I feel like if we have people who meet over a beer or something, we'll probably talk for six hours or more. For sure, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I'm really grateful uh, for this conversation. I learned a lot and I hope that we, we can inspire more people uh, to build stuff, you know, and make money online. That's how you should be living, doing the things you love and making money. And so if people want to uh, learn more about the light chat or follow you guys, where should they go? They should follow both of us on Twitter. Um, I'm HyPreetam93 Sankalp Jana. He got a better handle than me. <laughs> And uh, Delight Chat is at delightchat.io. Uh, if you are someone who's listening to this podcast and has an e-commerce store, then definitely join the waitlist. And we would love to talk to you and find out how we can uh, make your life better. If you enjoyed this episode, please support us by leaving a rating on Apple Podcasts. Also, subscribe. Thanks for listening and see you in the next episode.